Welcome to the Edinburgh Napier Marketing Network podcast. We've got a very special guest taking us behind the scenes of the marketing industry today. Joining me, Alessandro Ferri, and my colleague, Jackie Hadland, is Kev Chesters, a leading light in UK marketing. Kev is co-owner and strategy partner at The Harbour Collective, a London-based collaborative group of at least 400 experts across 12 independent specialist agencies. In his career, Kev has headed up a department of more than 60 strategists at one of the UK's top advertising agencies. More recently, he has produced a book on how to unlock creativity in the business environment. you've got a very distinguished career as a strategist now you're an author can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory trajectory may flatter it so i did a history degree which i seem to remember my father telling me would be suitably useless for doing anything quite it actually turned out to me to be quite useful i think because um what i think you have to do as a historian is have a hypothesis go out and gather all the evidence and then work out and construct the argument for you know and then argue uh, as to whether it's right or wrong and that kind of set me up in many ways for what I do. So I went into, I, I always wanted to go into advertising. I can't really explain why. I, I always liked the media. I was always kind of, and I've always had quite a rebellious streak. And my mother would never let me watch ITV. She always said it was quite common. So I think I just sort of snuck and watched it and then sort of got quite into the adverts as some kind of sort of form of rebellion. But so I went into advertising. I, I started life on the sort of exec side, you know, um, as an account handler, managing clients uh, at one of the big agencies called Ogilvy, three or four years. And then, then I kind of noticed that there was this role in strategy. And it was because I was quite bored in what I was doing. And I, I spoke to a friend said I was thinking of leaving the industry. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And he said, well, why don't you write a list? Write down everything you like about your job and write down everything you don't like about your job. And then that will help you to work out what you want to do. Very good advice, by the way. And so I did. I showed him the list and he said, you're not in the wrong industry. You're just in the wrong job. You know, so all the things I didn't like were like organization and finance and all of that sort of stuff and making things and production and practical things. And all the things I loved, were sort of human behavior and sort of analyzing data and looking at why people did things and research. And so I went into strategy at the same company. Uh, I then went onto the client side. I was head of strategy at British Telecom for three years. Uh, and then I went back into ad agencies in quite senior strategy roles. So I worked at Saatchi and Saatchi as a planning director there. I then went to an agency called Wyden and Kennedy. It's very famous for doing very famous campaigns like Nike. So Dan Wyden, who set it up, is the guy who wrote Just Do It, the line, you know what I mean? Um, Nike, Honda, Lurpak, a lot of very, very famous work. So I headed up strategy there for five or six years. Then I went to a Japanese holding company called Dentsu, and I ran strategy there for three years. And then I went back to Ogilvy. So it was interesting. I'd left 20 years before, and then I went back as kind of the chief strategy officer. But then two and a half years ago, I quit. And I quit to set up my own company with two partners uh, called Harbour. Because I've been in the industry for a while, I'd noticed what worked and what worked really well. But I equally noticed sort of what didn't work. And it was quite good to be able to set something up to go, right, well, the good bits, we'll do that. 
and then we won't do any of the bad bits. And, and, and really what Harbour is, is a consultancy to work with very senior clients, essentially to crack problems around their brand, around their business. branding I tend to focus on with clients is every category that exists in the world has what I would call a sea of same so that you know they all sort of say the same things because the category has a driver so if you imagine kind of supermarkets they have a driver which is price and quality other categories they might be driven by control or they might be driven by trust or various drivers but if you allow yourself to all say the same thing, no one's going to notice. So what we always look for is what is the key difference? What is the key part of the category driver that you can own, that you can drive, that will make it more interesting? Because the key to anything in life is doing new and original things. It's all to do with evolution. And this is largely what led to the, um, the book understanding creativity but in its broadest sense because people often think creative means drawing or singing or poetry or dancing they don't think creativity involves strategy or business or finance or sort of impact on commercial impact on a business where that's all it means if you look up the word creative in a dictionary any dictionary it will always just say doing new and original things that's what it means and so yes yeah, so that, that's sort of what led to the book and it's kind of the central thesis of the company which is how do we differentiate your business or your brand within a world that is too noisy in a world that's too samey and where if there's one thing all customers have in common uh, in fact they all have one thing in common that, that they are all human beings so they they are driven by human drivers and so we are as a species driven to do exactly what everyone else does to fit in to go with the consensus, to not stand out. What kind of creative work have you done with brands? And do you have any, any examples of creative projects you've been involved in? I mean, lots, yeah. I mean, it's all I've been involved in for 25 years, but some of the ones that probably people may uh, know uh, that I led strategy on or I was at the center of, uh, from an advertising perspective, if you think back about 10 years, I worked with the CMO of three, the mobile company to crack their strategy how were they going to differentiate themselves against all the other companies and that led to a campaign that most people would potentially remember and know which was a lovely little moonwalking shetland pony that was moonwalking to fleetwood mac which was completely different to anything else that was running in the category they were all talking about phones and networks and various things and we had a moonwalking pony, which didn't mention phones, networks, didn't show any phones, but basically blew the category apart. Did brilliant 
for them commercially, set them up as the leaders of the mobile internet in the UK. We were actually phoned by Christy McVie from Fleetwood Mac at the agency, who phoned us up to thank us for putting them back in the charts, because that was the impact it had. Uh, very involved with um, British Airways, repositioning British Airways, uh, working with their chief exec and their CMO a couple of years ago, which led to all that uh, We Love You Britain work, Made in Britain work with Olivia Coleman and various other people. And then going back a few more years, I worked very closely with Carlsberg. So Carlsberg don't do. Uh, I was the lead planner and strategist on the Old Lions work, which was the England footballers. The Carlsberg don't do pub teams, but if they did, they'd be the best in the world. Which sitting right in front of me here is a framed England shirt signed by every single one of those um, uh, footballers, uh, which I got from the shoe. So yes, a lot, lots of different, lots of different brands, you know, big brands, small brands, domestic, international. So I've worked with, in the last sort of few years, John Lewis, Costa Coffee, Boots, Vodafone, British Airways, Sipsmith Gin. Uh, and over the course of my career, I've been lucky enough to work, you know, lots and lots of great British brands. And one of the things that I advise clients on from the UK government through to lots of other brands, international brands, is how do you take a British brand abroad? You know, because it's very different to do something at home than it is to do something away. Kev, this whole concept in your book, the creative nudge, is very much a British concept and the nudge has been used by the government uh, to good effect, but it's a little bit controversial as well. Perhaps you could just set out for our listeners what this nudge is and why it forms the kernel of your philosophy for your new book. I would dispute that it is a British thing, actually, although there was David Cameron's nudge unit. You know, this, there's nudge units in a lot of state governments in the US. There's a very famous one in Australia that I reference in the, um, the introduction. All nudges are, are little things that help us make a big difference in our lives. So, you know, and, and the reason we need them is we have to do new things, right? So Edward de Bono said that creativity was the key to progress, right? So we need to progress. He also said it was the key to leading a new, um, a happy and interesting life. And quite frankly, after the last 18 months, who doesn't need to live a more happy and interesting life? Um, but the problem is the humans struggle with the new. We struggle from it from an evolutionary perspective. I refer to it in the book as a twin conspiracy. And, and when I say conspiracy, I don't mean sort of tin foil hats and pizza basements. What I mean is that we need to do new things in order to progress. But as humans, we can't. We physiologically can't. There are two things that stop us. The first one is biology. So our natural programming stops us doing new things, right? 50,000 years of evolution. Anyone who did anything new got killed right fundamentally right so you know oh i wonder if i go and see that mammoth oh i wonder if i eat that berry oh i wonder you know if you did new things you tended to get killed so all of our genes going around our bodies are like coward genes you know so we have six primary emotions as humans five of them are negative right it saved our lives it got us to the top of the food chain right so the first thing that stops us doing new things is biology the much bigger thing that stops us doing new things is sociology. So on our societal conditioning stops us doing new things. Don't stand out, go with the consensus, always oh, not a very good team player. Everything that we do gets you to agree with things. 
right? You won't get anywhere new agreeing with people, right? So if you want to go anywhere new, you've got to be different. You've got to be prepared to be different, right? Or you won't go anywhere new. You've got to be prepared to be wrong or you won't go anywhere new. And the problem is society will punish you for that. So if sociology and biology stop you doing anything new and you have to do new things, what are you going to need to do? You need help. Or, as I would refer to it in the book, you need a nudge. You need a nudge. So I'll give you an example of a nudge. Really simple. Nothing controversial. Put your gym kit by the door before you go out. Right. So when you get up in the morning, you're more likely to pick it up. You know, other simple nudges, really famous nudges. When Danny Boyle was planning the Olympic opening ceremony in 2012, he was really worried because he had thousands and thousands and thousands of participants, right? And he was really worried that they'd leak. They'd leak the secret. They'd tell everybody the secret of what was going to go on, right? They didn't. Do you know why? Because he reframed. He did a nudge. He told them all that he wanted them to keep the surprise. Not keep the secret. If you tell someone, if you tell someone to keep a secret, you know and I know that you'll tell everybody, right? It's just natural human behavior. Oh, don't tell anyone. And the first thing you'll do is tell everyone. But if you, but if you say, so that was a nudge. He changed it from secret to surprise. And there's lots of little nudges we do. And in our life, we need help. And the reason they're called nudges is because you can't, humans like naturally shun the new. Genuinely, it's called neophobia. It is a sign, you know, I know I'm talking to academics, but it genuinely is, you know, a scientific principle. So it's like phobia therapy. You can't just get people to do something. You have to get them to do slightly different versions of things they already do. So that's why it's called a nudge. Otherwise, they'd be called shoves. How do you think we can integrate uh, nudging in branding? Do you have any ideas in mind? Nudging it into branding? Yes. Well, in the first instance, it's about helping you to overcome your natural fear of doing new things. You'll see it. All logos currently are all just sitting there in that kind of Helvetica type. Everyone's saying the same things in the same ways because everyone's terrified to stand out, right? The, the problem you've got is if you don't stand out, you will be ignored. There's a behavioral science principle called the von Restorff effect. Humans only notice the noticeably different. So our brain is the single most efficient, you could call it lazy, but most efficient organ in the body. It focuses on what's really important because historically, obviously going back 50,000, 100,000 years, it had to eliminate the irrelevant to focus on the threat. Or when Waitrose didn't exist, it had to eliminate the irrelevant in order to focus on getting some food. So what the brain does is it edits out anything it considers to be irrelevant in order to focus on the important. And that's why if you apply that principle to branding and advertising, if you think you've seen it before, you won't notice it. So if everyone's just going blah, blah, quality at a price you can afford, great quality, at low prices, quality, sorry, what was that? Sorry, mate, I've got, a, I'm focusing over here. I'm not, uh, in branding, this is the reason that supermarkets change their aisles every six to eight weeks, not for your benefit, <laughs> 
they do it because otherwise you'll shop on autopilot. You'll just go to the places where you know the things are that you always buy. So they switch it around so that you're wandering around, not really knowing what you're doing. And therefore, you'll pick up new and different things that you notice. So in branding, you have to be different. The only fatal thing in branding is to be ignored. You know, it is better to be disliked. It is better for people. You know, as I said, with the primary emotions, five primary, sorry, six primary emotions, five are negative. They're there for a reason. You know, people often think you just have to be positive. You don't. You can get people to be scared. You can get people to be disgusted. You speak a lot about differences in terms of your strategic approach and the strategies of the people you've managed. Is there a specific approach you take or does everyone have a different way of going about developing a good strategy? It's a great question. I, I refuse to believe that one can industrialize creativity. As my, my father would often say a phrase about life, which was if, if it was that easy, we'd all be doing it. <laughs> you know? So and, and believe me, if I had worked out the proprietary replicable foolproof process for developing creativity i would not be sat here now i'd be in a hollowed out volcano somewhere auctioning it to people for the highest bid starting at a billion dollars so no but there there are simple rules one can follow in the first instance you know within my consultancy harbor the first thing that we seek to do is to identify what we call the sea of same. What is everyone in your category saying? Because they're all, 90% of them will be saying exactly the same thing. They might be using a slightly different verb, but you know, but I always describe it as um, fridge poetry. You know those boxes of fridge poetry, which is words that you're just moving around. You know, if you go to the business to business space, it's a good example of this. They'll all be empowering the possibility of enablement the enabling empowerment of possibilities enable the possible empower the possible possibly enable what are you on about they're all just moving around the same words so i think the first thing i look to do is identify what's everybody else saying therefore and then you can work out what drives the category you know quality price you look at financial services trust you look at other things, there'll be control, you know, there'll be certain things that will human factors that will drive a category. Then just work out, there's always something that's hiding in plain sight. Okay, always, which if you live in a world, if you grow up in a lunatic asylum, you just assume the world is mad. Okay, because your reality is one thing, right? Your perception is one thing. So if you live in a category, if you live in the world of lager you know the lager category <sighs> honestly go and read them what are they all telling me they're very refreshing oh are you well that's original for a drink that's 90 percent water i think you'll find drinks are refreshing that's the reason people drink them and then it'll be sociability yeah i know because if you sat at home on your own drinking a can of lager it's not really very good optics for society and your friends do you know what i mean so people tend to go out and drink and so it's refreshing. Oh, good. Then everyone in the category will think they've alighted on something thoroughly original, which would be to turn refreshing into an adverb. So we'll be refreshingly, refreshingly British. Oh, refreshingly tasty. Oh, well done. 
you know, you're a food and drink and you're tasty, I would kind of argue that that's pretty much entry level. Again, sorry, but I'd, I'm getting off the point, but food is another one very similar to like, you know, the amount of people who tell me they're tasty, like, yep, thanks for that. One would assume that you have nice taste as a food, otherwise you're not a food, you're a medicine. And, and so a lot of times people just say the same things over and over again. Plain sight, if you get a fresh pair of eyes to look at something, they will notice something new. So I tend to come into categories, analyze the tropes, and then kind of talk to clients and say, have you noticed this? And a lot of times they won't have done. So British Airways is a good example when we work with um, Alex and Carolina at British Airways. They wanted to know what it was that they were all about. You know, what are we about? What, what really is British Airways all about? You know, what, what, what's our positioning? You know, what, what, what do we do? Other than the obvious, of course, which is, you know, fly people to places, which frankly, quite a lot of airlines do say that they do. And I would have, again, thought that that would be pretty obvious. So the thing that was hiding in plain sight for British Airways was unless they were planning on changing their name, the most important thing in that name was the word British, right? Whatever they wanted, and it was written down the side of their planes. It wasn't like they were hiding it. Um, whatever it is they wanted to be, it didn't really matter. Because once I say the word British to somebody, they've already got hundreds of preconceived ideas and prejudices and thoughts about what it means to be British. So all we had to really do with them was work out, well, what part of Britain? You know, everybody thinks they own a bit of Britain. Nigel Farage, Stormzy, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, Jeremy Corbyn. You know, everyone thinks they, everyone thinks they own it, right? Tommy Robinson thinks he owns Britishness, you know? You go, so you've really got to go, okay, you're British. Which bit of Britain do you stand for, right? And is it Britain on her best day? If you look at Britain, Britain is so open when it's good. It's open and it's tolerant. You apply it back then to the product. So what does the product do? Well, fundamentally, it does two things. It takes Britain to the world and it brings the world to Britain. And then if you apply that to everything that happens in society, you know, our patron saint is St. George. St. George was born in the Lebanon. He never set foot in Britain. He's the patron saint of Georgia, Russia, Syria, and skin diseases, right? Where did he come from? You know, you look at um, fish and chips. Fish, you know, it's, it's fried fish is a Jewish import into the East End in the late 19th century. You know, all these things. We've always basically assimilated things from the world. And, and that's good, because that means you're open and you're tolerant. And so the positioning was we take Britain to the world and the world to Britain. Hence that developed made in Britain and all the work that came from it. But that came from analysing everything that was said in the category, which was just about, we'll take you on holiday. We'll give you, it's like, I know, that's what you do. That's what an airline does. But what's your bit of it? Hiding in plain sight was the Britishness. The third element that you do to differentiate is there's a behavioral science principle, and we talk about this in the book. There's a behavioral science principle called the IKEA effect, right? Alternatively known as the eBay dilemma. Um, what what this proves is that we we disproportionately fall in love with things that we make ourselves. 
okay so it's called the eBay dilemma because if you put something on eBay, you always overestimate how much someone is willing to pay for it. Like you like it, you love it, you always overestimate. No one else gives a shit, right? It's called the IKEA effect because you build some, even as simple as an IKEA wardrobe, you build it and you like it more because you put the effort in, right? Effort endowment, it's also called. When you put the effort in, you think, so what do I mean by this? The third element that I think you always should do in branding to differentiate, work out what is the difference between what you sell and what people buy. So I'll give you a good example in that. Charles Revson, the guy who set up Revlon, said that he sold perfume, but people bought hope. Now, if you imagine this, what are my clients, Match.com? You know, they sell a dating service, right? What do people buy? You buy the promise of happiness. You buy the promise of happy ever after. You know, that thing that you had as a little girl, putting a veil over, pretending to be a bride, that thing you had on, the thing I had on Charles and Di's wedding day of, God, one day I'll be a prince and I'll be walking my princess down the aisle. That's what you're buying into. You know, Nike sells shoes, but you buy empowerment. When I put them on, I think suddenly I'm not some fat old knacker. You know, I'm <laughs> suddenly, you know, I am, you know, Usain Bolt. Look at me. I'm Mo Farah. I'm, I can do anything. I'm king of the world. So the third thing that you always look to do is the client will know very much what they sell. An estate agency service, a chocolate bar, you know, a, a shoe, uh, business to business services, etc. But what are people actually buying? What are they buying? Because they'll be buying on a human need, a human truth. I'll be buying that thing. I'll then be looking for all the rational reasons so I can tell my friends why I bought it. When I walk around in that, when I, when I buy that pair of Allbirds and I think of them because yesterday they astonishingly IPO'd to be worth $4 billion despite never making a profit in their life. When I buy those Allbirds, right, they're selling me a pair of shoes made out of merino wool. But what am I buying? Well, when I walk around in them, look at me. I'm Elon Musk. I'm a bloody founder. <laughs> I'm this East Coast. You know, I'm, oh, look at me. That's what you're buying. That's all branding fundamentally is, Alessandro, isn't it? I mean, you know, if I look at Volkswagen, they make four cars. They own four cars, Volkswagen, right, that they make. The Skoda, the Seat, the Audi, and the VW, right? They're all made essentially in the same factory in northern Italy. And all that changes is the badge on the front. That's what I'm willing to pay for. What does that say about me? When I... When I have that badge and I drive it, what am I projecting out to the world? What's it about? What's anything about? Food and sex, right? I am <laughs> out there. This is, the con this is the fundamentals of the book. Why am I buying these brands? Because of what they say out there in the world about me, right? Are they going to help me survive? Food. Are they going to help me procreate? Sex. What am I projecting out to the world in what you're asking me to buy into not just buy. Thank you very much, Kev. That's fantastic. Um, I'm curious to ask you about these evolutionary perspectives you mentioned. I was actually looking into that in my research as well. I want to ask you, what can we learn from that? And uh, 
how can we integrate those principles to build better and more efficient brand strategies? It really is a great question. The first thing it should teach you, the first thing it should teach anybody in strategy is humility. We always overcomplicate. It's our natural, it's certainly strategists, it's our natural tendency to think, you know, we're dead clever and things are really much cleverer and more complicated than they actually are. I think what, what evolutionary principles teaches and behavioral science teaches us about decision making is we're not very complex creatures. Humans aren't very complex. As I say, we're driven by food and sex. You know, we're fundamentally driven by five or six key principles and drivers and emotions. And we do everything emotion first, logic second, everything that we do as, as a species. You know, if I think back 20 years to a category like digital cameras, people say, why did you buy that digital camera? Well, 16, nine optical zoom, 12 megapixel. Robert, you've no idea what you're talking about. You bought it because of the brand name and because it looks shiny on the shelf, right? humans are not complicated. So when we're developing brand strategies, what evolution should mostly teach us is to identify the human driver in any category, not the category driver, not the product driver. They all come next. You need all of them to understand what are the rational reasons that I will justify this purchase to my wife, boss, someone else's wife, bank manager, whatever it ends up being, right? I need all that stuff, but for brand strategy, evolution teaches us that that is what all our customers have got in common. They've got in common that they're human. A secondary point, which, which I've been doing a lot of in the last year, is a lot of the latest research disproves one piece of very dangerous received wisdom. And that is when you're doing business to business decision-making and you're talking to business to business clients, you know, when you're talking about big infrastructure projects, maybe a hundred million pound multi-touch point, multi-person decisions. All the latest research, particularly some wonderful work done by Google proves is that decision-making in a business to business environment is more emotionally driven, a lot more than in business to consumer. Now that sounds contradictory, but if you think about it logically, your stakes are higher, your price is higher, right? And your stakes are higher personally, okay? So what all this research essentially proves is people do not take decisions in business for the good of the business, right? They take decisions for the good of themselves in the business. So if I put the right solution in as a chief technology officer, what happens? I get a promotion, I get a pay rise, and I might get to be the chief exec. I'm driven by my own personal drivers in that context. And emotion works much more powerfully in more rational categories. People again think in things like financial services or IT, you have to be very rational, very rational, you know, because it's a very rational subject, isn't it? A very, you know, very sensible subject. Um, so where does the sex come into that then? B2B marketing is traditionally very dry. Ah, it comes into it because if I get that promotion, if I suddenly get promoted or my business IPOs or whatever, I'm king of the world or queen of the world. Suddenly I'm more attractive 
to the rest of my species. My wife or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my husband will think of me better. I will suddenly walk taller. I will be seen, and now from an evolutionary perspective, I will be seen as better mating material. I will be seen as more fertile. I will walk taller. People will look at me and think, look at that person. Look at that girl. Look at that boy. He is a much better mate than that other one over there that I'll leave to wither and die outside the cave. I will mate with this member of the species because they are successful. <coughs> and in the old days, successful meant they would kill the mammoth or they would bring the food. These days, it means they will get the promotion. So therefore, they can buy me a better holiday. They can get me more food. They can take me to that restaurant. It's all evolution. Kev, just playing devil's advocate, every marketing student is introduced to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, you know, these yeah. are very basic needs we're talking about. Do we ever get up that ladder to the self-actualization? And where does that fit into your theories? Or is this all a load of hogwash? Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. It's based entirely on um, Maslow. In fact, uh, I, um, I had a client I was dealing with recently who was founded, who, who opened their first store in the London borough of Hounslow. So I actually presented the work back to them as um, Hounslow's hierarchy of needs rather than Maslow's because, because it, it fits perfectly. So it, it's exactly what I was just talking about which is the practical reasons all sit at the bottom of Maslow. Survival, sustenance, etc. So they are all the rational reasons. How many miles it does to the gallon, <coughs> you know, etc., etc. All those things, that all sits at the bottom. Then in the middle of Maslow, all around love and belonging, it's what are you asking me to buy into? What are the traits of this brand? that I share with other people who choose this brand. So your Nikes, your Patagonias, Audi. Back when Saab was a brand, I used to love that brand because you'd never meet anybody who bought a Saab by accident, right? Whoever drove a Saab would tell you they drove a Saab within two sentences of meeting them and explain why. It was a club. It was a membership of everyone doing it. So that's the middle in branding, love and belonging. Who are my tribe? Who are the other people who share my values within this thing? And then you move up, self-esteem. What is this thing saying about me? You know, the self-esteem, the sex thing we were just talking about. If I choose this brand, it will make me feel good about myself. It'll make me think I'm a good person, or it will make me think I'm a fitter person, or it will make me think I'm a healthier person, or it will make me think et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And once I've developed the self-esteem in the brand, I suddenly drop one up. Then I'm into self-actualization. Who am I? Why am I here? What function am I fulfilling? And so one of the principles, one of the um, processes I take brands through is, um, is to go from product to purpose. So there's four buckets you go in. Because the problem that most brands have when they're doing branding is they only do one and four. So they'll say, well, you know, we're a toilet tissue, we're very absorbent, and we've got 160 sheets per roll. And we are making the world a cleaner place. Sorry, you've, you've missed a bit here. I don't really understand. A minute ago, you were a brand of crisps, and now you're saving the world. I don't really understand what happened in the middle. You know, so what the, what the P2P, the product to purpose um, methodology does, 
uh, and it helps with the the Maslow thing is you work out what you are first, right? Product. What are we? What do we do? You know. So, for an example of something like wine gums or a, a candy like that, you know, it's it's an assortment of iconically shaped coloured sweets, right? That's what it is as a product. And then your second bucket, you say, well, what's our what's our rational <coughs> benefit then? What's the rational benefit of that? Well, it's sugar, it's a rush, it's a high, you know, there's all the things you can talk about in that sense. Then you move on to your third bucket, which is your emotional benefit. What does that do? What does that do? You know, does it make me feel, so if it's sweet, and I'm an adult. Well, there's all sorts of things that does, isn't it? It reminds me of childhood. It brings back memories. It makes me feel happy. It frees me up. It makes me sort of more, my sort of more fun side of my life. Do you know what I mean? And then you can get onto, well, what's then your purpose? Is it to kind of bring more joy to the world or bring more freedom to the world? But if you've just done, I'm a coloured sweet and I'll bring freedom to the world, you've missed this massive chasm in the middle. So that's what I think a lot of branding is about and also really helps you to find out what's different about you, you know, to the creativity piece, because you have to be different. Back to that Van, Von Restorff effect. The reason the majority of brands fail is because no one gives a shit, right? Everyone's busy, right? We're all busy. We've got too much to do, right? And technology is making us feel that society's speeding up. It isn't, but it, it's kind of resetting our internal pacemakers. So we always feel like, you know, we're always being updated with things. We've always got a clock now. So we feel the world is moving faster, even though it isn't. So we're busy and our brains are busy. And because they're evolutionary, they'll focus on the, the most important thing. And that isn't your toilet tissue or your bag of crisps or what it is. And honestly, the biggest mistake, and I've done this for 25 years, for some of the biggest brands and the biggest advertising agencies, etc. The biggest mistake that everybody makes in the branding communications world is that people want to hear what you say. Okay? That's the reason that media money exists. It's what I always call, I call media spend an attention bribe. Okay, we are spending money to bribe you to listen for 30 seconds to something you don't give a shit about, but I do. And so don't ever fall into the trap of thinking people want to hear what you say. Entertain them, let them notice you first off. If they don't, if you're not on a list, you can't get chosen from a list. So you've got to get noticed. That's the first thing. And the simplest way to get noticed is to be different. You spoke also about something that caught my attention, tribes. Oh, yeah. Can I please ask you to expand on that? For example, what kind of advice you provide to, let's say, you know, a, a new brand coming into the market who wants to build a tribe? What can they do to facilitate that process? So tribes are interesting. If you look at a dictionary under the word tribe, you'll also find other words like herd. Uh, gang is another word that you'll find in there. And if you look at the definition, it just says a collection of like-minded individuals who share a set of values. Okay, that's, that's what it is. That's what a gang is, a tribe is. Uh, sorry, a set of shared values or objectives. 
So tribes came together because it was right. We want to survive and we want to thrive. Therefore, and then it's also one of the real nightmares about consensus, by the way, because if you didn't agree with the whole tribe, you got kicked out. So from an evolutionary perspective, if you didn't go along with what everyone wanted, you died. So this is coming to modern business thinking, which is a real problem. Does everyone agree? Yes. Right. Well, we'll move forward. I would argue that if everybody agrees, you probably haven't thought hard enough about it. So I think with tribes and gangs, one of the things that brands can do, very simple, is work out who you're for and then work out who you're not for. Who are you against? I always think one of the best things you can do in a, broad, a branding or marketing project is define who your enemy is. Who's your enemy? Who are we Who's on our turf right now who we want to kill, who we want to kick out, who we want to get rid of, right? Who don't we like, right? And so one of the projects that I've been working on recently, and I'm trying to write it as a second book if things like work and pandemics didn't keep getting in the way, is I've analysed gangs across the ages. And I've got a very loose definition of gangs. So I've done it from the Girl Guides and Scouts and Brownies to the Moonies to Islamic State, the um, RNLI, you know, the Lifeboat Institute, the Women's Institute, um, um, the Losers Club in IT, the, the Royal Marines, the Paleo Gangs of Siena, and I've analysed them all and realised there are 10 characteristics that all gangs share, that if you apply them to your business or your organisation, you'll be successful. Really simple things. And a shared objective is one of them. And a shared set of values is another. You're asked to buy into something. And if you don't buy into it, you know, you can look at this on gangs like MS-13 or the Yakuza. <laughs> You're asked to buy into a code. <laughs> and if you don't buy into it, you don't join. Or you go and join somewhere else. You know, you join the US, uh, the US Marines. You're always a Marine. Semper Fi, forever. For the rest of your life, you're a Marine, right? Even when you leave the Corps, you don't leave the Corps. So I think in terms of brands, lifetime value of a brand is always the thing you should be thinking about. So, so many brands think about one-off purchases. How am I going to get you to buy? Whereas if you think about something like an airline, what they'd like you to do is keep buying from them, keep going back all the time. It's why they create loyalty schemes, which are actually weird because they're actually disloyalty schemes. They're bribing you. To, it's a bit weird. The name's a bit odd, I find. They're not loyalty schemes at all because if you fly once with them for business and you don't really care, you get all these massive amounts of air miles and somebody who's flown loads but an economy does it. Anyway, I get slightly off the point. But lifetime value is really important to brands you want people buying and buying again you look at a brand like apple you know in london when apple releases a new product there's a hundred thousand people who would queue around the block for a dog turd if it had an apple logo on it do you know what i mean no one bought the iphone in the first iteration because it was a good phone it was a dreadful phone it was awful it's a dreadful piece of kit there was kit in the market at the time from motorola and nokia that was light years ahead in terms of technology no one wanted that phone because of what was in it everyone wanted that phone because what, what was written on it and so it was i am part of this group look at me and so 
the learning from tribes for brands is who are your tribe? Who do you want? What is that loyalty beyond reason you want to create? Look at a brand like Patagonia. So one of the other things that Harbour, we always do for clients, because we're not an ad agency or a communications agency at all, our core product when we go back to brands is we go back with behaviours, not communications. We go back and say, right, if you were a brand that believed in this, if you were a brand whose platform was this, this is how you would act. These are the kind of partners you would choose. These are the kind of sponsorships you might make. These are the kind of content series you may sponsor. Oh, and you know what? These are the kind of ads you might make, but it's not really, communications is one part of behavior of a brand, but too many people obsess over that bit. And then what you tend to have is a really dangerous disconnect between what your ads tell people about you or set up as an expectation versus then what the product or service delivers against that expectation. But just to round back on the tribes thing, it really is a question of asking yourself, who do we want? Who are our sort of people? What are our values? Too many brands ask people to buy things rather than buy into things. And when I'm buying your product, what am I buying into? Tesla's a great product, but it's a much better brand, which is why it's worth in market cap 10 times a brand like Ford that's been around for 100 years because you're asking people to buy into something and that's a tribe you know and humans like to belong and they like to make their choices demonstrate what they belong to or what they believe in you have been listening to kev chesters co-owner of the Harbour Collective and co-author of The Creative Nudge, speaking to me, Alessandro Ferri and Jackie Hatland. Thanks for joining us here on the Edinburgh Napier Marketing Network podcast. Until next time.